Welcome to the Deadline Podcast, our weekly roundup of the great obituaries from The Telegraph. I'm Harry DeKettville. This week, the many guises of fame, as we look at stars, people who should be stars but aren't, people who find they are stars for one tiny part of their lives, and people who suddenly become stars late in life. So twinkle, twinkle. Who is that shining away on the other side of the studio? It's Christopher Howes. Hello, Christopher, our all-round seer. How are you? Well, I've been basking in our own stars shining this week and enjoying cherries. They've been moving over the surface of the earth, starting from Turkey and getting nearer and nearer. Last week it was Spanish cherries, and this week French cherries. Delicious. Delicious. Okay, so we're not talking about um, things in the sky, but the fruit. Okay, you had me slightly baffled there. But it's a constellation in the studio this week. It's not just Christopher and myself, but Mick Brown is also here with us, our fantastic magazine writer, interviewer of the stars, all other kinds of fantastic escapades he has, and he's going to be talking about Bobby Womack. Hello, Mick. Hello, Harry. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Well, let's crack straight on with Bobby Womack, uh, an extraordinary life, the soul singer, the testifying soul singer, and a leader of a somewhat rackety life. But we'll get on to that a bit later. Mick, tell us a bit about Bobby Womack, why he was so good as a singer and a musician, and what we should cherish about his music. Uh, well, he was fantastic, and he was also very important. He, he, he was probably the last of the great soul testifiers. You know, he came from that period, uh, first rose in that period in the 1960s, along with people like Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, James Brown, people who'd taken the testifying style of singing Just out, what, of, what is that, the out of the church. Well, it, it very much came from the gospel tradition, mm-hmm. uh, where you know a, a preacher would get up and, and, and be preaching and singing, uh, and there'd be a lot of screaming, a lot of hollering, a lot of raw emotion pouring forth. From the congregation, too. Uh, from the congregation, too, and from the choir. You'd have this sort of call and response going on right. where the, 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 the preacher would be urging the choir and the choir would be urging on the preacher. Um, and there were a whole raft of tremendous gospel singers who came out of that tradition and then moved over to rhythm and blues. Um, and, and Bobby Womack was one of those. So he started off in a gospel group with uh, four brothers called the Womack Brothers uh, and then went to Los Angeles under the uh, un- uh, under the care of Sam Cooke, who himself had been a gospel singer, who Famous then became an R- sitting on dock of the bay. Is that Sam? Uh, no, that's that's uh, that's Otis Redding. Um, um, this, uh, <laughs> Sam uh, Cooke. A change is going to come. Was. Um, his most famous was, track. It was probably his most famous track, yeah. Okay. Uh, great, great singer. Uh, and, and as I say, a, a pioneer in a way of, of coming out of the church and moving into secular soul and R&B. And Bobby Womack followed that path. And, and he was just a, a, a fantastic singer. Also a, a tremendous guitarist, greatly underrated guitarist. Uh, and uh, in the 60s played on a lot of sessions. Um, people like Aretha Franklin, Dusty Springfield, uh, Wilson Pickett, um, marvellous songwriter as well. Yeah, what are his so, most famous tracks, you would think? Um, his, well, his biggest hits were, were probably Harry Hippie, mm-hmm. uh, which actually he didn't write himself. Um, nobody wants you, nobody loves you when you're down and out. Oh, very um, celebrated, yeah. Looking for a love. And probably most famously, although I don't think it's his greatest song, uh, very, very early on he wrote It's All Over Now. Mm-hmm. Uh, which became a hit for the Rolling Stones in 1964. In of fact, course. gave the Rolling Stones their first uh, English number one. British number one, fantastic. And at the time, obviously, one imagines these gospel, this gospel music, these churches as very 
um, almost exclusively black environments in America. Was this music crossover? Did it have mainstream appeal, white appeal as well? Or was it reserved almost entirely for the black community? Gospel music was very much the music of the black community. Mm. Uh, uh, but, but it began to cross over as these guys came out of church, and, and women as well, of course. Yeah. Aretha Franklin right. started off singing So this R&B trend song. started coming across, across America, very pop music. So. In, yeah. in, in, in the 1960s, it started to percolate into mainstream pop music with artists like Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett. As I say, and particularly, particularly in Britain, interestingly, uh, where Bobby Womack uh, over the years maintained probably a far larger following than he than he'd had in America. It was a much more respected figure than he was in America. That's right. What, why can we? To what can we ascribe that? I think it's that curious, that curious thing about the romance of, of, of other. You know, there are English groups who are who are still cherished in America that we've long <laughs> long since forgotten. Herman's hermits, for Herman's one. hermits, of course. <laughs> uh, yes. Probably not, not even to be spoken of in the same sentence yeah. as Bobby Womack. Right. Um, but uh, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I mean, so there's 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 a number of of, of performers from that era. Who, who who were were, were very popular here and, and who sustained their popularity over the years. So so Bobby Womack could always be assured of a of a huge and appreciative audience here, whereas he couldn't in America, particularly in in, in more recent years. He also had ex- extraordinary longevity. I mean, he was around for a long time, wasn't he? Moving through, I guess, various musical genres. Did he as he progressed? Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he he was always what he was. He was always a, a soul singer uh, and. The records there was the, the records became more sophisticated certainly in the in, in the nineteen eighties. There are two classic records that he made, uh, the poet and the poet too, mm. uh, and these these are really the epitome of a very sophisticated what you might call uptown soul sound, mm. you know, with very kind of um, complex arrangements, jazz jazz styled arrangements, mm. uh, wonderful wonderful singing. I mean, but the, the great miracle, of course, about what Bobby Womack that he should have survived so long is is that his everything in his life suggests he should have died at the age <laughs> of twenty one, in, in in a blaze of uh, inglory. But, Absolutely. Um, well, there are sort of photos of him with Amy Winehouse. Over here, when he came over, and together they looked uh, extraordinary. And you kind of thought, well, gosh, two slightly rackety people, you know. <laughs> but there he was in his late sixties, and there she was in her early twenties. And she, of course, died before him, years before him. That's right. That's um, right. Tell us a bit about that extraordinary lifestyle he had. Um, he started off wanting to be a preacher, but those good intentions didn't last. That's right. Well, historically, you know, the, the, the preachers in the black community would have the best of everything. And, and, and Bobby Womack said that, uh, you know, he, he wanted to be a teacher because they had the Cadillacs and the best piece of the chicken. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, and as you say, that, that didn't last very long. Uh, <laughs> But, I mean, it was a life that was characterised by drug addiction, tragically, by gunplay, uh, by the most bizarre um, family relations. I mean, he was, he was a, he was a, a womaniser and, and a philanderer. He started off his womanising with one of his mentors. You mentioned Sam Cooke, but um, in our wonderful obit, we also mentioned the five blind boys of Mississippi, um, who were part of one of his mentors, and he used to, I think, played guitar for them. Is that he, right? He was he was playing guitar for the five blind boys when he was thirteen, um, and uh, yeah, he he would uh, part of his duties involved sort of leading them back to the dressing room after the show, hands on their shoulders, uh, all following one another, one another in a line, uh, looking after their wardrobe, uh, and, and as he once said, that um, if, if they were feeling disposed, he'd get a little bit of their nookie yeah. afterwards. Well, from their girlfriends, from their girlfriends, if they were if they were accommodating enough. Um, so yeah, he had an early start in in, in the field, um, but probably most uh, peculiarly, uh, as I said, his great mentor was Sam Cooke, uh, and when Sam Cooke 
died. Bobby Womack was working at that point as Sam Cooke's guitarist. Uh, Sam Cooke, we should remind ourselves, died himself in fairly uh, lurid circumstances. Cook, yeah, Sam Cooke was was shot dead by a by a by, by the manageress of a motel where he was having a tryst with a prostitute. Righto. Um, and when he died. Um, uh, Bobby uh, was was an instant comfort to Sam Cooke's wife Barbara. Right. Uh, and within three months, they were married. Um, Not something that pre- pleased Sam Cooke's friends. I uh, no, say. they were they were very put out by this, and, and in fact, it threatened very early on to derail uh, Bobby Womack's career. He he wasn't very popular in the in the musical community for doing this. He was even less popular with uh, with Sam Cooke's wife because not long after marrying her, he began an affair with her teenage daughter Linda. Uh, and that obliged him to leave the house at the end of a gun. Right. Um, and, uh, and so then, hang on, that, that, there's an incredible constellation of relationships. That makes him the it gets, father-in-law. It gets more complicated. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was the father-in-law, then the lover. Right. And then not long after that, Linda married Bobby Womack's younger brother, Cecil. <laughs> so Bobby went from being the father-in-law... So, so I should say the, the stepfather went from being the stepfather to being the lover to being the brother-in-law. I think this is probably un- a unique triple in the history of matrimonial relationships. It's, wow, um, that is extraordinary uh, and complicated. And complicated. Uh, and and complicated. Um, but he also had a very uh, a very unhappy time with with his own children. I mean, he had a four-month-old child who, who died of suffocation in in their cot. That's right. Um, and then this extraordinary story with his four-year-old son, uh, when Bobby was, uh, was, um, I think you mentioned, at the height of his sort of drug-fueled uh, paranoia, ca- t- t- carrying a gun, and he saw the door handle of his bedroom turn while he, you know, so he reached for his gun. That's right. He was lying in bed uh, with, as you do, you know, his gun under the pillow and, and saw the door handle turn, and so fired off a few rounds into the door, uh, and the door swung open to reveal his, uh, his own son standing there. And happily, the bullets had gone over the uh, over, over the, the boy's head, head through 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 the door. Um, Not that things turned out much better for that boy. No, he he ended up going to jail himself. So so there was a yeah, I mean a very a very a very lurid and and, and a very tragic and a very unhappy in that sense life. Um, but somehow he managed to keep it together and keep producing good music. Well, you know, a bad life is often the spur to to to, to great music. And I have to say, I I was very fortunate privilege to, to, to meet Bobby Womack two or three times and and, and he was a he, he was a charming man and uh, a, a very entertaining man and, and by the end of his life I met him not long before the end of his life by the end of his life had that sort of weathered wisdom you know that, that, that comes from having sort of mired yourself in the in the depths of experience and and, and, and uh, he was an extraordinary character and and above all and what he'll be remembered for of course he was just a, a fantastic singer Mick Brown, thank you very much. My pleasure. Now, before letters and moustache news, let's hear a little bit of Bobby Womack's genius with Nobody Loves You When You're Down and Out. I believe I'll hold on to the lady green Call the fun I'll pull out a poncha When you're down and out Pull out a poncha When you're down and out Down and out Moustache News now, um, also a star really in the making because here's a man who's going to be the subject of a film later this year directed by Angelina Jolie, 
with a script written by Ethan and Joel Cohen, the Cohen brothers, uh, Christopher. And the man I'm talking about is not a celebrity, but he surely will be soon. His name is Louis Zamperini. He was an American Olympian and an airman in the US Air Force. And his extraordinary tale of endurance after being shot down in the Second World War became the subject of a best-selling book, Unbroken, by Laura Hillenbrand. Our readers and listeners might know her for her book, Sea Biscuit. And it's her book, Unbroken, about Zamperini that is going to be transferred and made into this film to be released in December. Christopher, have you read the Zamperini tale where you was taken with it by it as uh, oh, yes, so uh, many readers of Hillenbrand's book? Well, there were so many incidents in his life which were very striking, starting with the 1936 Olympics in which he ran the 5,000 metres and had the uh, perhaps unwanted publicity from... Adolf Hitler, who was watching, ah, he said, you're the boy with the fast finish. That's right, because he, he did very well on the last lap, didn't he? He ran a blazing last lap in the 5,000 metres. So that was the incident, sort of one, of a very incident-packed life, running in the Berlin Olympics. But soon enough, he was called up to fight in the war. And he did so very bravely, but then things began to be very difficult. Uh, there was a famous 47-day raft a voyage in which he had any bits of fish to eat, had the opportunity to have a fight with a shark and did that thing which we've all been told to do but think is impossible, which is biffing the shark on the nose. I don't, yes. I, one often hears about biffing sharks on noses. Easier said than done. Easy, I think it needs think, a bit yes, of practice. Exactly. I'd like, I, I, yes, but I having survived the shark, it was out of the frying pan into the fire because then it became a... This we should also exactly. He became a prisoner of Japanese. This we should also say was after he was shot down. Uh, he and his crew were shot down in their bomber on their Pacific patrols in the Pacific Islands. He was captured by the Japanese. Only he and one other, I think, of his crew survived the crash and this extraordinary 47-day drifting in the raft, plucked to apparent safety by the Japanese. Of course, he was then taken into a prisoner of war camp where he came face to face with his tormentor known as the bird, Christopher the bird. Yes, it's particularly unfortunate because people were very badly treated by the Japanese and I think there were some statistics in the obituary saying that a third of the prisoners uh, perished in Japanese camps compared with, say, 1% who were prisoners uh, from the US in German camps. And it's unfortunate that Poor old Zamperini met somebody who's clearly round the bend, and uh, Zamperini was singled out for bad treatment from this man, daily beatings and very creepy kind of relationship. Uh, the prison guard seemed to somehow pit himself against this Olympic champion. The difficulty comes after the war. What do you do about it? Well, Zamperini didn't really want to do anything about it. He, like many people, suffered mentally from the memories of the war. He wanted at one stage to go and kill this man, Watanabe, in Japan. Uh, I'm glad he didn't do that. Uh, he, he got as far as being told falsely that Watanabe was dead. He was just in hiding. Yes, Zamperini uh, did travel back to Japan, didn't he? He Try got as far him. as Japan, yes, and didn't find the man. Later on, after an amnesty, he found out that Watanabe was still alive and was prepared to meet him. Uh, by that time, Zamperini had become a born-again Christian. He never did meet Watanabe because Watanabe wouldn't meet him. I wonder if they 
had met whether there might have been some reconciliation, but it's no easy matter forgiving somebody, really. Do you think these reservoirs of, ra of rage are sometimes punctured by the act of meeting the figure which you have built up this huge reservoir of rage about? Well, it would certainly be an experience. I haven't had that experience, and uh, I think it, even that wouldn't necessarily be a long-lasting uh, reconciliation. We have done several obituaries of Japanese POWs uh, who have managed to overcome their feelings of rage and who have gone back and, in fact, become campaigners for British or oh, allied servicemen and Japanese friendship in the years after the war. And it, it does seem a particularly heroic and noble yes. cause. And um, indeed, the readers of this obituary online had a long debate after the Zamperini obituary about the nature of forgiveness and whether Jap Japan and Japanese servicemen ought to be forgiven for these extraordinary uh, crimes and brutality through which they put allied servicemen. MJ Mitz wrote in to say, um, I attended a prisoner of war luncheon about 10 years ago and not one single American prisoner of war held by the Japanese would talk to me about their experiences. In fact, many were so bitter that tears welled up in their eyes and they clammed up, whereas those held by the Germans talked about where they were shot down and other experiences while held prisoner by the Germans. So it's a comparison that I think is often made. But of course, the brutality meted out by J Japanese captors to their prisoners was one thing, but to say that the Germans were somehow better, I'm not sure that many Jews or Israelis today would agree with that. Yes, and I, I think you can't really forgive vicariously. You can only do it uh, f speaking for yourself. Exactly. Anyway, Zamperini there, Louis Zamperini, huge star, and perhaps rather oddly, he's going to become a bigger and bigger star after his death with the um, release of this film in December. And, of course, it was the book that really made him famous in the first place because his story, though remarkable, is, as an obituaries editor who deals with these stories all the time, no more really remarkable than, than so many wartime experiences that we recount. And that is what is so extraordinary about, about these wartime experiences. They are each and every one extraordinary. Now, Vernon Ginger Coles is a perfect example of that because he was an engineer on midget submarines who steered attacks on German warships hiding off Norway. Tirpitz was the big target for the Brits and allies in the Second World War. Do you remember Tirpitz, Christopher? Oh, yes, Tirpitz is always turning up. And it almost turned down at that stage. <laughs> it turned upside down, absolutely. They, they got as far as putting explosives underneath the ship. It did, but not quite enough, unfortunately, to sink it. Tirpitz was rather... I've never quite understood uh, the point of the Tirpitz. It was just this vast German battleship. But then it hid in the Norwegian fjords because it was felt that uh, to unleash it, it would just be, be hunted down and sunk as this sort of trophy target, I think. But maybe Hitler thought that it just tied up much of the British fleet just by being in a Norwegian fjord. I don't know. The thing about Ginger Coles' obit was it reminded me not only of the enormous heroism of these servicemen, but also of the sort of fog and chaos of war and shortages and, and all the cock-ups, which we tend to overlook in, in obituaries decades afterwards. But, uh, yes, there was a bit of confusion. They very successfully sank a ship, uh, a German merchant ship, which was in harbour in Norway. It was called the Berenfels. That's right. And um, a reader wrote in about this incident, <laughs> pointing out that the Berenfels were sunk twice during the war. Once uh, when Coles and his 
crew uh, attacked it. And once four years earlier, when, when it had been minding its own business in a, <laughs> in a Norwegian uh, fjord, uh, that takes some doing. And there was some uncertainty whether the second time, whether, when Coles's team were at work, whether the, the actual target was the ship itself or the harbour where it was yes. moored. What was interesting was on this uh, mission to target Tirpitz, um, the midget submarines were towed most of the way there by big submarines, by normal submarines. And so there was a towing crew, and then the attack would be carried out by the attack crew. They'd switch in the sort of fresh troops. The subs would come on and get in to launch the attack. But the tow ropes, I mean, this, Christopher, this mm. is what is so extraordinary. This whole plan that you've fiendishly researched and planned and trained for. This whole plan comes down to tow rope. So you'd think that would be a fairly straightforward piece of kit. But no, no. to tow a small midget submarine from a big submarine, you wanted a nylon tow rope. And the best thing for that was the RAF ropes that they used, um, nylon, that they used for... Oh, for towing gliders. For towing gliders, exactly. But would the RAF give the Navy all the tow ropes like needed, hell they would like hell they would so only three of these lovely nylon tow ropes were, were made available and X9 which was the X craft that Ginger Coles was on had to be towed by a manila mm. rope which got very very heavy and yes. kept breaking and mm. so the, on after a couple of days of being towed this tow rope came loose and the weight of the tow rope on the midget submarine dragged it down to the bottom of the sea. And the towing crew, which of course didn't include Ginger Coles, who was on the attack crew, the towing crew were drowned and the X-craft was lost, all through want of a bit of nylon cord. Mm. And it just reminds you that it's sort of on details like that. The accidents but, ooh, of war, exactly, yes, and but survival. The, the wars are won and lost on, on supplying and rations and things like that. It's... it's um, it's an extraordinary thing, and, and Ginger Coles was extremely bitter about the loss of his friends on that towing, towing crew for want of a nylon rope. Anyway, he himself, a great man, like so many, and uh, I was glad to read about him. Letters now, Christopher. What delights have you got for us this week? Well, this week, Mr Juncker, the heir apparent to the presidency of the European Commission, has attracted readers' attention like a cotton reel uh, to a kitten. The well-beloved... Frederick Forsyth, the author of The Day of the Jackal, of course, wrote in, as he does periodically from Buckinghamshire, to counsel a touch of realism on all this. He said, The authors of several letters on this page have urged that David Cameron call a national referendum without further delay. But a referendum requires an act of Parliament to set it up. Nick Clegg would certainly use his blocking vote in the Commons to prevent that, Mr Forsyth says. And then what would happen then? Well, not much. So what he th thinks is that Mr Cameron should uh, await the outcome of the general election and hope he gets returned with a working majority. There is no point, says Frederick Forsyth, in baying for the moon. Well, so, a, a piece Telegraph. of advice we might all take. Well, it wouldn't be a Daily Telegraph letters page. However, Sir Charles, Sir Charles Macefield who used to be the executive director of BAE Systems, wrote in with his own perspective on the EU. It's widely reported that the 26-2 vote for Jean-Claude Juncker was a humiliating uh, defeat for David Cameron, he began. It was far from it, he said. History may well show this to have been the turning point for Europe. Since that vote, he says, a number of European leaders have emphasised the importance to the EU of Britain's continuing membership, including 
Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, who has now stated this to be a priority. The Prime Minister's stance has therefore at least opened the possibility, says Sir Charles, of a future two-tier EU containing those moving towards ever closer union alongside those with greater national autonomy. Well, that's what he says, and we'll see. We certainly will. In these lovely summer days, the subject of non-alcoholic beer proved surprisingly interesting to many readers. Steve Frampton of Waterlooville in Hampshire wrote in to say, I've just purchased a six-pack of Beck's Blue non-alcoholic beer. Other non-alcoholic beers are available. So they may well be. So far, so good for Mr Frampton. But then he says, with the beer comes a warning label. Please enjoy Beck's Blue responsibly. Can anyone, he asks, explain how it's possible to drink non-alcoholic beer irresponsibly? It's, Any answers, Christopher? Oh, plenty of answers. It's quite easy, really, wrote Mark Allen of East Grinstead in West Sussex. Simply remove your shirt and walk through the town centre with a can in your hand. That would do it. Well, that's a little snapshot of Britain, isn't it, in, the, in this summer. But for David Fisher of Leicester, there was another problem with non-alcoholic beer. Another problem apart from the obvious problem. Well, first you have to buy it, he says. When buying Bavaria 0%, which is another kind of non-alcoholic beer, at a self-service till, I always have to wait for an assistant to confirm that I'm of age. Really? Yeah, it's just one of those pointless hoops that we have to jump through every day. And uh, yeah. Are you not allowed to buy non-alcoholic beer unless you're 18? I don't think it's the law, but it's just something stupid that the supermarkets put into effect. And hmm. what do we do? I mean, either you go on strike in some way or lead a protest or you go through with it. Christopher, I tend to find that it. I have to summon someone to help me when I'm at a self-service till whatever I'm buying, no matter how, you know, alcoholic And the poor old supermarket is. staff are so keen to get you to use a self-service till. I, I'm afraid I often say to them, well, you know that this is doing you out of a job, don't you? But they don't seem to mind. I know, Christopher. There are many businesses where you might point that out, though. Anyway, let's be less curmudgeonly. Everyone's been enjoying Wimbledon this week, the we, tennis. Mm -hmm. um, and that means that they found plenty to complain about. Because Uncomfortable we love seats. Yeah. yeah. Complaining. Rackets being smashed like Pete Townsend's guitars. Mm -hmm. Intrusive commentators on the telly. Mm -hmm. Could there not be an easy solution to those pesky commentators rabbiting on and on, asked Edward Rayner of Eastbourne in East Sussex. We would not need to reach for the mute button to avoid the wittering of tennis commentators, he said. If the BBC provided viewers with a simple technical answer, the choice of the red button of a clean feed with only the sound of the play uh, would be very welcome, he thinks. Uh, it could be. Uh, Tony Wardle of Coombe Down in Somerset wrote to say it seems a pity that some Wimbledon players feel the need to celebrate almost every point with a distinctly aggressive clench fist gesture. In, this, uh, in the Songa Djokovic match, um, he was disappointed to see Djokovic claiming such victories even when the point was won on an unforced error. Tsonga, however, was modesty throughout, he thought. Well, Tsonga is a great favourite, isn't he, with the Wimbledon crowd? Well, uh, we'll see what happens in the finals. And uh, yes. it's going to keep some people indoors out of the sun and the warm rain. The warm rain. Well, that's the letters this week. Thank you very much. Christopher. <laughs>
now part two, and here I wanted to talk about two people who we've covered in the obituaries this week who weren't stars and aren't widely known, but possibly should be because their achievements, well, you judge, but I think they're heroic. Christian Fuhrer, bad name possibly, but... No, very good name, I'd have thought. Well, I think most people, Christopher, associate the name Fuhrer with Hitler, but of course Fuhrer in German means leader or driver onwards. Mm. And so Christian Fuhrer was ideally named, in fact nominative determinism one might detect, because he was an East German pastor and he held weekly prayer meetings in East Germany, which blossomed into the huge demonstrations that ended with the fall of the Berlin Wall. So he was literally, and by name, a leader of Christians. Christopher, did you Mm. read his story? It was quite remarkable, wasn't it? Yeah, I read the obituary, and I had vague memories of uh, how this happened at the time. He started off having prayer meetings at his church, and the authorities, despite their hatred of Christianity allowed him to do so. They thought it couldn't do any harm. After all, no one came. People praying for peace, they thought, was a jolly good idea. But they got more than they bargained for. They got a bit more peace than they were able to deal with. And week after week, uh, as it came towards 1989, thousands and thousands of people turned up. They tried, the authorities tried to block the roads roundabout with heavy-handed policing. Always Uh, backfires. And they were expecting uh, demonstrations and fighting. One East German official was quoted as saying, we were ready for anything except for candles and prayer. And that's what they got. And so the following week, 120,000 people turned up for the vigil. And the week after that, 320,000. And then on November 9th that year, the Berlin Wall tumbled down, as we remember, some of us. Yeah, it was stirring extraordinary. Stuff. It was stirring stuff. And um, Christian Führer's reaction to this was what you'd expect from a man of God, because, after all, he'd been getting over only a couple of dozen people to come to these Monday, every Monday evening prayer meetings for, for years and years, and then suddenly they blossomed mm. like something out of, you know, a sort of biblical story, to the point where he's getting hundreds of thousands of people, and not just in Leipzig, where St. Nicholas's Church, which he ran, was based, but also in other cities around uh, East Germany, the same phenomenon began occurring. So he had seeded something which spread and blossomed across the whole of the country. So being a man of God, you can imagine what he said. He said, when I saw that evening, this is when the wall came down, it still gives me the shivers today. Mm. If anything deserves the word miracle at all, then this was a miracle of biblical proportions. We succeeded in bringing about a revolution which achieved Germany's unity. It was a peaceful revolution after so much violence and so many wars that we, the Germans, so often started. I will never forget that day. And you can really imagine that, I mean, many men of God, I'm not a man of huge faith, but but you often think, well, you need so much conviction to last you through a lifetime of questing and wondering. But here's a man who's confronted by something which must have really confirmed him in his faith. Yes, and you could tell that he was somebody of independent and settled principle because he was quite able to see after the reunification of Germany that having nice cars and a lot of consumer goods didn't necessarily guarantee happiness. So he he wasn't just an apologist for uh, consumerism. Far from it. Indeed, um, Lee Fuhrer, one of our readers, wrote in to say, that poor devil, Mr Fuhrer, had no idea what he was doing. Little could he foresee how the fall of Eastern communist regimes would wreak havoc in the Eastern and Western world. At least uh, he realised how dissatisfied his people, the East Germans, were with a unified Germany um, because, of the, he said, fast cars and nice holidays are one thing, but many people were depressed with their new lot of the capitalism abroad and that communities had been split up by the 
by the go-it-alonism of capitalism. So it was a, perhaps a divided outcome, but certainly those heroic months of 1989 and 1988 were really down to him and those demonstrations just yeah. goes to show what one man can do. And given the choice of a wall or no wall, I know which one I'd have. Exactly, Christopher. Now, David Gardner Medwin, he's another chap I wanted to mention because I don't think it's a name which will strike a chord with many people, except perhaps in the northeast of England, because in 1965, David Gardner Medwin headed off to Newcastle, where he set up a multidisciplinary unit to help children, boys almost exclusively, I think exclusively, in fact, struck down with muscular dystrophy. It's a disease which is effectively untreatable. And so when he went up in 1960s, in 1965 to Newcastle, there was an atmosphere of despair but not with him, because he talked to mothers of these boys struck down with muscular dystrophy and worked out that what was needed was a coordinated approach between all the units of the NHS, physiotherapy, every other kind of help that could be provided. And now, Christopher, this is what is so amazing, mm. to this day, because of his approach, because of what he did, life expectancy for boys with muscular dystrophy in the northeast of England is 30 which is a huge advance on what it used to be. But still to this day, in other parts of the country, say in the southwest, yes. life expectancy is just 19. Yes, that's very striking, isn't it? And we're always saying that a picture is about people's lives, and this man's life was really about other people's lives. And uh, putting them. Putting a, a value on, on the people who are doing the living. Exactly. And not, not, not just having them cast out because they're haven't got a good quality of life, so-called. Or, or indeed that one was despairing because one could do nothing for them. He realised that we could do things yeah. for these people. And, um, and what I find so uh, wonderful about his story is that he started something in 1965 and we can still see the effects and the benefits today. So he's not a star, David Gardner or Medwin, but he is in my book. He's a hero. And I think we should pay tribute to him. And I'm sure there are families up and down the country, or more particularly in the northeast of England, certainly, who do pay tribute to him and remember him every day. Now, finally, Terry Richard, he did lots of things. He was a stuntman in films, but he was famous for one, just one thing in his life, really, because although he starred in James Bond films and in The Avengers, Where Eagles Dare, The Dirty Dozen, all films like that in the 60s, 70s and 80s, he's really famous because in the first Indiana Jones film, Raiders of the Lost Ark, he was played an Arab swordsman in a very famous scene. Christopher, do you remember what happens next? Well, I do remember it, yes. I, it, it is very memorable. So this cloaked, black-looking Arab swordsman, so-called, um, is uh, whizzing his sharpened Scimitar. swords around in the air. And it looks like Harrison Ford is going to be chopped into little pieces. Diced up. And then what, what happens next? Well, uh, gosh, Indy, Indiana Jones, instead of taking on the, uh, this scimitar-wielding uh, brute with his whip or in the fisticuffs, he simply remembers that he's actually... <laughs> remembers he's got a gun in a holster on his waist, so he simply wearily pulls out his revolver and plugs the man and then turns on to carry on with the I'm adventure. Not sure, I'm not sure there are any moral lessons in this, but anyway, <laughs> it's a very good scene for a stuntman to do. And I think we said that there was one particular reason why... Yes, he did it chosen. because um, Indiana Jones, it was filmed in Tunisia and Indiana Jones, the star of the, I'm oh, sorry, Harrison Ford, the star of this Indiana yes. Jones film, was suffering from dysentery at the time. <laughs> so he was knackered and ill and had a temperature and thought, you know, bugger this. I well, an example of the silver bullet. The silver bullet, exactly. There you go, Christopher. And Terry Richards, um, I'm not sure to his chagrin, 
but uh, found himself at fan forums being besieged by fans who always asked him to recount the same story. He was never in doubt when a fan approached him what story they were going to ask <laughs> him to talk about. It was always the Indiana Jones story. Um, so there we are. He didn't seem too miffed, however. John Reese davis wrote in to say, I had the pleasure of working with Terry on several occasions, notably on Raiders. Um, he trained for three months, building a great routine with the scimitar. This was the point, actually, is that before Harrison Ford got to yes. the two were meant to have an extended fight scene. Um, but John Reese jones says, if memory serves, the fight with the scimitar was the reason Indy, Indy even carried the bullwhip. But if, if uh, Terry Richards was heartbroken by never getting uh, to do it on camera, it never showed, and he was chuffed when he saw it, had the best laugh in the film, which it certainly did. That seemed, well, good for him. seemed to bring the house down. OK, well, that's about it for this week. Christopher, anything else that strikes you? A very strange story appeared at the beginning of the week about a crocodile that was sighted in the River Avon. Some mm-hmm. people thought it might be something to do with the warm water outflows from a couple of nuclear power stations quite mm-hmm. close by. But then we had a letter from Eric Woolworth, uh, who wrote in from Clandidno, and he wrote to say, as a railway fireman in the 1950s, I worked on trains between Manchester Central and Wigan Central. It was usual to take on water for the return trip, and we got the water uh, from a nearby canal. Consequently, every engine had its own little colony of sticklebacks, which went to and fro quite happily for weeks. But he didn't see any crocodiles there. It's brilliant. That's a wonderful tale. I didn't know that. OK, thanks, Christopher. And thank you, of course, to Mick Brown, who spoke so eloquently about Bobby Womack. That's it. Don't forget that if you've anything you'd like to add, you can contact us via Twitter on at Telegraph Obits. I'm at Harry DeCue. And you can also email us with your suggestions and comments on the deadline at telegraph.co.uk. Christopher, your contact details, please. Well, if you want to write a letter to the Telegraph, then send us an email to DT Letters. That's all one word. DT letters at telegraph.co.uk. And you can follow us on Twitter as well. A lot of people do. And it's a very simple at thing. It's at letters desk. Couldn't at- be simpler. All the obits mentioned in today are on our website. Until next week, this has been The Deadline. <laughs>